Stand by for a start. Racing. $210,000 at Isella Dunn. Welcome to episode 17 of The Shortlist, the official podcast of the Federation of Bloodstock Agents Australia. This podcast is brought to you by our fantastic sponsors, IRT and Stable Financial. Joining me today to digest the latest talking points in the world of bloodstock and to throw forward to the upcoming yearling sales season, Julian Blacksland from Julian Blacksland Bloodstock and Louis Maheka from Laurel Oak Bloodstock. Gentlemen, good morning. And Louis, I hope I didn't butcher your surname too badly there. That's pretty close, Mick. <laughs> you nailed it, Mick. Good morning. Uh, gentlemen, look, we're going to do a bit of a, I guess, a recap. We're going to look at one of the success stories of, of 2022. I also wanted to talk to you both about the, the trend of buying fillies and mares from these US and, and European uh, mayor sales. And we'll have a, a bit of a look forward to some of the 2023 20, uh, yearling sales and some market predictions. There'll be our key talking points on episode 17 of the shortlist. Louis, one of the success stories of 2022 has to be Rebel Dane. And as a stallion, he's a horse that you've had a hell of a lot to do with throughout his racing career and uh, now his breeding career. Can you give us a little bit of the background to Rebel Dane, the sire, of course, of, of Fireburn, a horse who's basically come from complete obscurity and well, maybe not complete obscurity. You'll probably tell me why he's, he's been a success story, but uh, from from an unknown sort of position to producing a champion. Uh, well, it's been, it's been a story, yes, a very unheralded start. Um, I get uh, the credit for Rebel Dane. We did do the mating, but the mating was recommended by Patrick Brain when he was still alive. We used brain pedigree analysis back then, and uh, he recommended the mating. Uh, there is an irony that uh, we wanted to go to not a single doubt at the time when he was standing for about 10 or 12 grand, but our mare was deemed uh, not good enough, and we went to California Dane instead, so with happy results to more than ready mare. So we just thought it would work with not a single doubt, and as it turned out, uh, a few years later, his first group one winner, not a single doubt, was out of a more than ready mare. So we may have got a good one anyhow. And uh, when the horse was, he was a very lightly framed horse, not perfect in front and just wasn't sale quality. And uh, we have reached a point where I said to the breeders that uh, well, we've got a choice. I said, either we race him ourselves or we lease him to a country trainer because the seed trainer won't take him. And whereas uh, I bask in the glory of Rebel Dane, I've got to thank the owners because to a man, they said, we'll, we'll race him ourselves. So he went to Gary. Gary trained mum, and um, and that was a natural just progression there. And from the outset, he showed good ability. And at, when he started his career, he was very very good. He won a midweek race at Canterbury Maiden, and there were several uh, group winners came out of that race. And I know soon after, John O'Shea actually told me he said, "I don't know what Gary thinks of your horse, but my runner-up in that Maiden was a group winner, the Victoria Derby winner that year, ran fifth in the race." So a strong start. He won his first three starts, came back from the spell, won the Royal Sovereign in his fourth start, Group 2. Fifth start ran uh, Piero to a head in the Hobart Bill. So he just uh, started as a very good horse. Then he sort of became, once he committed to Group 1 and 2 racing, he was um, always competitive but never really fortunate with barriers. Um, but he ended up winning two Group 1 races, multiple Group 1 plays, uh, Group 2 winner, went to stud. Nobody wanted him. We reached a point when he was about six uh, when there was no interest from any farm 
And uh, we decided for what we could sell him for, he's got potential to earn, he had potential to earn more as a racehorse. So we raced him for another year and another year. So he retired as an eight-year-old, which again is unfashionable for yeah. staff retiring. So even though he's a dual group one winner, weight for age winner, sprint winner, Aussie bred, it was sort of a little bit like spirit of boom in that sort of a tough Aussie sprinter. Um, but we canvassed every farm in New Zealand, Australia, no one wanted him. So um, we got an offer from Swettenham, uh, which meant we paid, um, but it was fair enough. If we had 60 mares, we broke even. And it was, and, uh, it was a two-year deal with an option for a third, um, but we only got 30-odd mares in each, each of the first two years. And then even amongst those, I'd say if we covered 60 mares, I think end up with 54 foals for the first two crops. Um, probably 10 of the mares were our mares, so there was no no income from that. So ended up costing us a lot of money to stand him there. And uh, um, Swetton were great to work with. And they say they came up with Glen Eat as an alternative. They have a different cost structure, suited us better, more adjustment based, and then pay on number of uh, nominations. But in the third year, he had a minor, well, not a minor issue, but he had a blockage of tail, so that they didn't react to it as quickly as um, I missed an email apparently, but anyhow, there was no phone call until that became a real problem. And he ended up only getting seven foals that year. Wow. Once the problem was fixed, he was fine. But the next year, um, no interest in him. Got 14 mares in the fourth year. Um, so in amongst the first first uh, few crops, the first two crops, there were some planned matings. I recommended to Stephen Ken, who our current owner, Steve Grant, Ken Lowe, that um, Bernardini mares were, would suit the stay on pedigree. They bought two, and um, one of them was subterranean. So to get him a group winner uh, early on, was fantastic for the horse. So that helped him get 49 mares in his next year, which was last season at uh, Glen Eden. And then we bought a mare to send to him, especially on pedigree. And that was $22,000 for Mull over. And the result was Fireburn. So that was just a, a phenomenal result. Now, to breed a slipper winner is an achievement. To, uh, to, to own a slipper winner is just a massive thrill. It's like winning a major in golf. Uh, but the, the journey that it took the stallion on was the incredible part because yes. it wasn't just us. So we got the, we got the dam and then uh, we've got the, um, the stallion then suddenly becomes um, a very fashionable stallion and people realised this is actually a very good stallion. So we suddenly had a lot of interest in him and we were very fortunate uh, um, that Whitten was chosen uh, amongst some very fine competitors in opposition um, to where to stand him in 2022. JB, Louis obviously deeply connected to this horse and and his story as we've just heard but from a from an agent from a buyer and inspector on the on the outside looking in when did rebel dane bob up on your radar probably when fireburn won the golden slipper to be honest yeah um that's probably a bit narrow-minded um but you know <clears throat> I, I i saw it up close too because i was standing there in the in the uh at, at the winning post with the slipper with <clears throat> My wife training the runner-up, best mm. of Bordeaux. Um, she's an unbelievable filly, um, Fireburn. And I, I actually went back through Rebel Dane's career, and as Louis alluded to, um, you know, he raced against himself. He raced against some unbelievable horses. He's mm. fallen around Dundeal and Piero and Buffering. And, you know, these were the these were the top race horses of his time. He's a very competitive horse. Um it's interesting though, you know, you go to these yielding sales, you look at 5,000 horses and, 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 and with such a small foal crop, we, we, we simply haven't been exposed 
to the numbers of Rebel Dane yearlings at the sales. So it's hard to have a, a you know an opinion either way on the horse. If you're not seeing a lot of a stallion's progeny at the sales, you're not really exposed to it. You're not really buying many. You don't really have a big opinion. Um, but um, I think we all stood up and took notice when when that when that amazing Philly Fireburn burst on the scene and was the top two year old. You know. So so given that we're probably not going to see you know a, a massive uptake of numbers uh, in Rebel Dane yearlings. I'm like, the, the Magic Millions Gold Coast sale, there's only one in the sale and it's from Musk Creek. How do you how do you play this horse, JB? Like, it's not as if you're going to go to the sales this year and everybody wants a Rebel Dane and there's going to be no, you know, 50 guess, of them in the in yeah. the market. I mean, I'm sure now he's at Wyden, um There's no better man to get numbers to a stallion than Anthony Thompson. Exactly. So I'm, I'm sure in the years to come, we'll see the numbers. Um, and he's certainly a stallion you'll take seriously now. You know, mm. I think he's he's, he's a colonial bred uh, top group one sprinter in his own right. Um, <clears throat> and as we've seen, there are no rules in this game. But you know, he he wasn't a flash in the pan. He was a tough horse, and as Louis said, he raced till he was eight, and he raced against uh, some of the best horses. But more importantly, he's he's produced a Golden Slipper winner and another. You know, a couple of stakes horses, and uh, his numbers are unbelievable. So I think you've got to be drawn once those numbers get to the sales. Um, I'd have no problem buying a Rebel Day. Yeah, Louis. When when you say his pedigree was was carefully planned and everything else, if you look at it on a, I guess the sales page format that many people listening are accustomed to looking at horse pedigrees, you know, just basically what they can read in a catalogue, it doesn't exactly jump off the page at you. But when you delve a little deeper and look at sort of where he's inbred and the like. He, he carries four maternal duplications, obviously Natalma and Al Mahood, which aren't, uh, you know, it's, it's not overly uh, uncommon in, in Australian racing, but he's also carries glamour and striking. Are they part of the the plan? Were, they, were those maternal duplications what you're after? Very very much so. So they both um, trace back to Latroyan, so he's very strong yeah. Latroyan, so he's got a, he's got a, a, a handy... Sixth generation pedigree profile, but the page lights up when you go to seven. So yeah. just, but it really does light up. Some some pages improve, but this one does light up. And so it was a well advised mating, um, helping the fact uh, that uh, it's very hard. It was very hard to achieve because California Dane died, but he was out of Seattle Slough mare, and Seattle Slough was strong in Latroyan female line. So that complemented more than ready really well because he's very strong in Latroyan female line. His pedigree. So there was a good blend there. The dam site also had contributions. So, yeah, it was just on paper, it's great. Commercially, it was very modest. The Stallion's actual catalogue page is very, very modest. But the um, the great grand, his great grandmother was when we was first started syndicating horses in 1986. Uh, his great grandmother was a $5,000 yearling from Dubbo Sale and one of our one of our five horses in our first year. And uh, she was a very good city class mare. The late Jenny Churchill bought her for us at the time. And uh, then through the family page, there was there were a number of horses there which we raced because we bred each generation of family and they were very good, talented, city-class horses. Now, there was not that sort of commercial black type that appeals to buyers, but from an owner point of view, they were very good and enjoyable horses. So that's one of the reasons we kept the family going. And um, in uh, 2008, we just made a decision to with our clients that will only breed mares that will the offspring can go to the sale. We're just accumulating too many ordinary mares. We can produce ordinary runners. 
And so we got rid of all those mares and only left, kept the commercial ones. I said bar one, and that was Texacana because we mm. knew the family so well. And, and literally that year, the mating we did what produced Rebel Dane. So that's had unbelievably happy consequences. So what does the future look like for the stallion now? Is it Widden? Uh, numbers will increase dramatically, you would expect, in, in this season. You might be able to tell us what sort of numbers he's, he's covered in, in 2022. But we've heard JB talk about how he's going to approach the stallion and, you know, he's a horse to take notice of as somebody so connected to him. You know, what are your expectations in the next two or three seasons? Well, the likes of Rebel Dane and those that are out there, uh, need, no, sorry, the likes of Fireburn need to carry him because... Um, as we've got one yearling, I even shocked that there was one yearling in there because this is his foal crop, but there's only seven foals. Wow. So in this, this current crop of yearlings. So there's not going to be much coming through for the next two years. Excuse me. So the current um, the, the current runners will need to carry him. Uh, I think he's only had 25 runners to date, uh, two group winners, one stakes placed horse. Um, so that's sort of good, sound, solid, well above average strike rate. And needs to maintain that, but Fireburn's going to have to do the heavy lifting and come back and hopefully draw a barrier next time round, and um, then uh, just keep his name up there in lights because he's come up. He's had a good season this year. Had 140 odd bookings, ended up covering 120 with a few late scratchings and free returns, etc. And because Fireburn didn't um, uh, get a re- get a high profile result in the spring, it probably he needed that to just get that extra 10 or 15 mares. Um, so he needs that again to get a good book next year just to keep his name in the spotlight. If it doesn't happen, then uh, he's going to have a um, 100 foals coming through this year. And if he can maintain the sort of strike rate that he's got so far, then um, uh, he'll get a lot of good runners and that'll build him in the future. His problem, of course, is that he started late. He went to start at eight. He got discovered at age 13. So, so time is on the wing for him. So all very narrow band of opportunity, but just a great opportunity for breeders to breed to a value stallion um, and uh, breed a runner, breed a sales horse, but more more a runner, I think, um, than a sales horse because um, he, he's just not, he's not, time. his timing is not sexy enough to be a sales horse. The ones that go, you know, the, the mo- that, that moment's passed, but you can get, produce good race horses and that's good. Well, he was one of the success stories of, 2022 Rebel Dane, and if anyone listening wants to buy one, you can have slim opportunities, but one comes up very early in the year. Lot 91 at the Magic Millions, Rebel Dane Colt, out of a mare called Mahogany Room, who funnily enough has produced a pretty good one by Rebel Dane, Lloyd's Crown, and that's offered by Musk Creek. And here's the stakes place horse, yeah, smart horse. When it comes to the transport of your valuable thoroughbreds, look no further than IRT, the world leader in horse transport. IRT has serviced the international market for almost 50 years with offices in Australia, New Zealand, Germany, the UK and the USA. Their experienced staff are with you and your horse at every step of the journey. IRT are proud to support the FBAA in enhancing and promoting the Australian thoroughbred market. IRT, your horse, our passion. Adam Timms here. Stable Financial has been helping thoroughbred businesses since before GST started and we enjoy some incredible long-standing client relationships. We're very happy to support FBAA and its reputable network of advisors. As the Bloodstock agents facilitate trading opportunities, the stable makes sure that horse owners, breeders, trainers and syndicators are getting Group 1 business and tax advice. Please visit our website and get in touch with our awesome team at the stable 
See how we can add value to your horse business and let you focus on finding winners rather than worrying about it. Gents, we'll move on and have a look at the the recent action from FBAA members over at these American and European filly and mare sales. And JV, it's an area that you've been active in in the past. Why do Australians go to America and the UK to buy fillies and mares? What what are they looking for? What are they looking to add to our racing and, and breeding industry? Well, I think, um, you know, historically over the last 20 or 30 years, we've been pretty Danehill, Danzig focused here with our stallions. Um, so if nothing else, we've been often looking for an outcross over there. You know, it's a, it's a, and the, and Vin Cox educated me about 15 years ago. He was obviously the Keeneland rep for a long time and he'd got Gary Cuddy to do a lot of statistics on the, um, you know, the Australian colonial speed sire or Danehill line speed sire over American mares and the statistics are very good pound for pound. It's a, it's, they produced an enormous amount of stake sources. Um, that's got to be tempered with usually those mares are pretty good mares that are being bought from over there. Um, but in saying that the stats are very good. Um, and most of those mares you can make that you buy over there, as long as you buy our physical style of mare, because uh, you do, you do have those uh, like uh, in Europe and in and in America you do come across a lot of them probably half of them but more that lighter boned two turn style horse longer horse dirt style of horse so you've still got to stick to the Aussie style of mare physically but you can make them to any stadium you like over here you know um, I think the Australian buyers have become more sophisticated in the last few years into learning their American form knowing what's good black type and what's Average black type. There's a lot of black type over there, isn't there? There's a lot of black type, and some of it's not as good as others. You know, some of it's, some <laughs> of it's more like Darwin black type, but, but uh, no offence to Darwin. But, um, you know, I think Australia buys, and, and the world itself of bloodstock has become a lot more worldly. You know, like you look at the European and American buyers now participating in our market, uh, trying to get a piece of our great industry down here with our prize money and our returns. Um so it's certainly become more popular. The issue we have, obviously, is our dollar. Um, I, I would go probably two out of every four years. I I couldn't. I, I watched the yearling sales this year at Keeneland up some twenty percent or more, and our dollar at sixty four cents. So I couldn't justify going myself. But it's still hard to buy a stakes mare in Australia. Yeah, you know, it's very hard to buy a stakes mare in Australia. So. Pound for pound, you're probably still paying the same over there because there are more of them to choose from than there are here, simply um, simply by having a bigger foal crop over there. But you know, I think it's a it's it's a wonderful explosion of genetics once you bring those mares back from Europe and America and you and you mate them to our Aussie speed horses. Um, you know, it can only be of benefit to our racing crop down here. Louis, you mentioned the example with Rebel Dane and and the maternal duplications line breeding that's going on in his pedigree. Do you often look at these overseas mare markets and, and try and inject, I guess, or find those sort of duplications that you're looking for, but perhaps with that that different bit of blood that we haven't seen in Australia before? Uh, I do. I found the market very hard uh, to to get into when every time we've tried to find, we've found something we really like, it's just too, too expensive, but very much a case of that 
I, I'm also more very conscious of um, uh, some bloodlines. Some American bloodlines do work here better than others, and uh, I just I note that so two stallions, which are great racehorses, who came out here in the and we do a lot of pedigree analysis, and uh, and on, I and they really struggled to find mares that suited them the way we do it, and they were Animal Kingdom and um, more recently American Pharaoh, and that's been reflected in their racing results. Whereas they've gone better overseas, where the gene pool of mares is different. So you just need the uh, you need to uh, get make sure that the mares pedigrees that you buy and complement the Aussie gene pool of stallions, and uh, then it's a massive help and uh, and it just many great families have been spawned from the right mare coming out here. Um, so it does help our bloodlines. We mentioned the cost of, you know, how expensive and competitive this market is, but I think we saw a classic example, JB, with uh, with alcohol-free, you know, group one winning mare goes through the Tattersall's December mare sale, just makes, you know, roughly a, a lazy 10.6 million <laughs> Australians through the ring. That's just mind-blowing that 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 sort of number and we've seen similar multi-million dollar figures against you know great mares at this european sale why are they so what why do they pay so much money for these top mares throughout europe and like comparatively you know i know we get big numbers here for, for great race mares when they come off the track but that's just you know phenomenal sort of money well, 10.6 I mean, look, the thing I find when you go to Keeneland, you know, in particular, all of, all of the phase ignite of the stars sale, it's it it it's like going to the Super Bowl of a of a horse sale, really. <laughs> you know, you go in there and you and you stand there, and you and and in comparison to the Australian sales, uh, to our breeding stock sales, which are unbelievable, and and we sell a lot of mares through our consignment at at, at the Magic Millions Broodmare sale, but if you're going there to buy, you know, at Keeneland or Phase, you you're lining up against uh, a lot of Americans. There's a lot of, you know, it's a big country. There's there's over 350 million people. There are more billionaires in America than there are in Australia. Yeah. Um, and generally, when those guys go to play, um, they're fair to, you know. And then and and um, you know, these are world sales. Um, I find it amazing, especially in Europe, with prize money so low, that 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 the value of the bloodstock is not in is not in the racing of the horses at all. You know, yeah. it's in, it's in owning the big stock and and um, you know, without those very wealthy big players over there in Europe, their industry would fall over tomorrow. And I think most of their participants would would echo that. But um, at least in Australia, we've we've got the prize money where where you can get out, you can get out through racing, which is one of the few places in the world. Probably us and Japan are probably the only two places you can do that. America, to, even to a lesser extent. Um, but it's incredible, isn't it? And isn't it great that they're going to race that horse on in Australia? Fantastic. You know, to have that opportunity to see that mare race down here. And and, it, and the beauty of Australian racing is that it can get its purchase price back with a couple of winners. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. That's a good point. Yeah. Would we have to see a horse like Winx or Black Caviar go to public auction to realise anywhere near that sort of money is is that the sort of horse it would take i, I know we've there's the recent retirement of snap dancer a group one winner you know magic means winner obviously a very good race mare she'll be a headline act come you know the mare sales in in april and may but she's not in the same league as those two great champions we mentioned is that the, is that what it would take to to see a horse go through the ring here in this sort of money i would i would i would think we will 
you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a result like that in the next five years in Australia. Wow. We, you know, we, we, we put a couple of mares through um, Melody Bell and Unforgotten. I, I mean, I remember selling Unforgotten through the Magic Million sales ring and it was, there were two online bidders and Mr. Zhang bought it for Yulong in the end, but I believe it was uh, Mr. Yoshida as the underbidder. Yeah. So it's amazing. We're in this room full of a, a thousand people at the Magic Millions, and yet she was being bid on um, from Japan and from China online. Yeah. It was it was a really interesting situation. So um, I wouldn't be surprised in the next few years. You know, we've got million dollar races popping up every weekend in Australia, which which they simply don't have in America or Europe. Yeah. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if we see a result like that in the next five years in Australia. And you would think uh, the Japanese will continue to to target our our best race mares as well. When you look at the recent results that Yankee Rose has had in Japan with Liberty Island, I think won a, a Group One uh, just in the last week. And she's Absolutely. obviously gone you, over there. Yeah, that's right. And when you look at our Australian dollar versus versus their money, our mares are still relatively cheap compared to lining yep. up to buy a multiple Group One winner at Keeneland or at or at uh, Tattersalls. You know, it could be an interesting sector of the market to watch in years to come. Journos might be salivating at the uh, prospect of writing about a seven, eight, nine million dollar broodmare going through the sale. It'd be, it would certainly be something to see. Race mare consigners are certainly salivating. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I think I'm talking to one right now. <laughs> <laughs> We're starting to see in Victoria now, and there's been a bit of a resurgence going on in the breeding industry in particular, probably over the last five or six years. But we're getting to that point where we're getting a couple of big players, a couple of mega farms, you could almost say, with Yulong and Rosemont uh, as well, sort of emerging as those big players in Victoria. But with Widdens input in the last couple of seasons, sweating them on the back of Toronado uh, has really you know re-established itself. And the arrival soon of, of Trilogy through the Blue Gum purchase, we've got some some weight behind Victorian breeding all of a sudden and some serious money that will make serious investment. That's good. That's brilliant. Is it what did the industry in Victoria really need that? Is that is that what it needed to be a genuine uh, market competitor to the hunter? Do you think, Louis? Well, it needed it needed that to attract the stadiums because the difficulty that um, all farms outside the big farms have had is is attracting stadiums. They've just come from New Zealand, and as we went around those farms that have at stand stadiums, their difficulty is actually accessing stadiums they they can't compete with the Australians for the um for the group one winners they've got super seth there now as their first crop sire but he's the only really dominant or well-known first first season side there and even that was touch and go from when we heard the story as to whether he'll go there or not um but he's there and uh and the farms outside the hunter valley have really struggled to attract stallions so um they're going to be the odd rebel dane style of of rise but um, it's going to become more difficult for smaller farms. It's already been difficult, but it's going to continue to be difficult for them, become more difficult as big players with more money come into it. And uh, but, but from a competition point of view, it'd be in a way, it'll be good to see Victoria be competitive again. Once upon a time, they were actually superior when they had the Rory's Jesters and uh, I know Flying Spur and Dan Zero started off down there and Acosta started off down there. Um, and if they, they are strong, then they'll probably stay there in the future. And so you'll have two solid breeding bases, but a lot of Victorians were sending their mares to the Hunter Valley to be covered. And uh, if Victoria's strong, then they'll be staying in Victoria to be covered. Adam Timms here. 
Stable Financial has been helping thoroughbred businesses since before GST started, and we enjoy some incredible, long-standing client relationships. We're very happy to support FBAA and its reputable network of advisors. As the Bloodstock agents facilitate trading opportunities, the stable makes sure that horse owners, breeders, trainers, and syndicators are getting Group 1 business and tax advice. Please visit our website and get in touch with our awesome team at the stable. See how we can add value to your horse business and let you focus on finding winners rather than worrying about it. When it comes to the transport of your valuable thoroughbreds, look no further than IRT, the world leader in horse transport. IRT has serviced the international market for almost 50 years with offices in Australia, New Zealand, Germany, the UK and the USA. Their experienced staff are with you and your horse at every step of the journey. IRT are proud to support the FBAA in enhancing and promoting the Australian thoroughbred market. IRT, your horse, our passion. JB, it's it's an interesting time for the market, isn't it? You know, we, we really do need that long-term growth and long-term investment in Victoria, but with the arrival of those big players, those big investors and Trilogy, the latest one, uh, it's it's a critical time, isn't it, for Victorian breeding? Oh, I think it's wonderful. You know, you've got some, you, you know, these guys are very passionate. Yes. Nigel Austin and Anthony Mithen, you know, they're, they're really passionate racing guys. Um, they've been in it a long time. It's, it's you know, they love the game. Mr. Zhang Yulong obviously loves the game. You know, he's yeah. at every horse auction in the world. He races horses all over the world. Um, trilogies come in. They they appear to be very passionate about racing. Um, they're in a number of big syndicates. Um, I think it's great. It'll be it, it'll be great competition between the two states. You know, we've got competition between the two race clubs. Um, which you know, it'd be nice if just on another topic, it'd be nice if they sat down and worked out a few things to work better together. But um, but you know, I I, I think it's great. It's certainly great for the Victorian breeders because there's a lot of big players down there who want to be a part of it. Um. And the Hunter Valley, you know, they don't have to, they don't have to dominate. Um, it'll be really interesting. It'll be really interesting to watch going forward. Let's have a look at a bit of a, I guess, a throw forward to the next couple of months with the start of the yearling sale season here in Australia. What are the overseas markets telling us, or what did they tell us in 2022? Can we expect another year of super competition and and growth in in what seems to be a bottomless pool of growth in the in the yearling sale market with averages going up year on year just about every year louis yes is the short answer it'll be very <laughs> it will be very very strong it'll be very very strong and for the reasons that we've we've spoken about already the prize money continues to escalate the number of big players in the market continues to escalate so um, these, these big players have now been seen to join forces to buy the better Colts, um, uh, but there are still separate groups competing against each other for the better Colts. That, that top-end Colts market is going to be very, very strong. I'm sure there'll be more million-dollar yearlings this year than there were last year. And, and while those players are keen and enthusiastic, um, they'll be there and they're going to drag the rest of the market up. You walk in your sale thinking you're going to need 100 grand to buy a nice horse at the Magic Millions and by, by the second or third day, you'll know you need 200. And that's just the mindset that you need at the sales now. And that's for the that's for the players down the lower end, the middle range players. Um, they, they drag the rest of them up because the competition on the horses that the uh, average trainer and owner can't buy and I'm not talking about the lower-end trainer, the, the guys who with city stables and city trainers, 
they're going to be have to pay more to get horses of quality, and that's just going to drag the market up everywhere. If there's going to be a weakness, perhaps it's going to be at the lower end, but even there, the prize money is so good that you know, I'm just not sure what part of the market the inflation and rising interest rates is going to affect. The top end is not going to be affected. That's that's out. That's 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 some, not a something that bothers them. Um, the middle range will probably stretch themselves more to get good horses to change, challenge for the prize money if they have to pay a bit of interest on the on the borrowings, and um, it'll just be strong throughout. JB. We sort of Louis just touched on there a couple of external factors, inflation being one, and and these rising interest rates being another. Like they they are you can't escape those. They're they're affecting everybody with a mortgage, people out there with credit cards, etc. They're all paying a little bit more now. Like this is real world uh, financial sort of pressure that a lot of people are feeling. Yeah, is the power of prize money that strong that it outweighs that and and keeps so, things I, moving? Yeah, I'm not so sure, Mick. I'm not so sure. I th- I think um, as Louis said, the top end of the market will take care of itself. It's its own little world. Um, you know, I'm not so sure. Of, I I think um, maybe not Magic Millions. I think Magic Millions will be a boomer. I think everyone's had a break. We haven't had a yearling sale for six months. I think everyone mm. will be there in droves. It'll be huge. I wonder about when we get to March, April. Yes. Uh, whether whether it might just not temper off a little. We, at, in that section you mentioned, in that syndicator section, the mums and dads who, who buy the 5 and 10% shares, I just, wonder, I just wonder how many of those will bat up again this year. And I think it might be a little tougher for syndicators to get horses away. That uh, That's probably a little pessimistic, but if you turn on the television and read the newspapers... That's what it's telling me. I, you know, I just wonder how long this can go on for this every, you know, and and, and these high clearance rates, you know, these clearance rates around 90 and 93%. Like that's an incredible clearance rate for any sale, but we saw it so often this year. Yeah, we did. Absolutely. And I, I think you make a great point there with the syndication and, and the mum and dad investors, which, you know, largely Australian racing sort of rides on the back of that incremental shareholding model. And if, if people are looking at their bank balances and thinking maybe this year's not the year to buy a horse, then that has a serious flow-on effect. Yeah, it does. And and, and interestingly, um, Casey, you know, Casey and I were looking to get a pool for this summer, um, and we inquired in June with a local pool builder, um, and he said, "Yeah, we could get out to you to give you a quote in October, but we can't build you a pool until July next year." Wow. So that is, I think, as a result of everyone during COVID doing stuff on their house. They couldn't go anywhere, so they put a pool in. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of backlog from that. But I wonder going forward now that we're all back at work and, and um, you know, every every six weeks we get another rate rise. Um, I th- it's got to, you know, it's got to have some effect, I think. It's got to have some effect. It might be the start of the year, but I, but I think, you know, towards towards the you know end of the third quarter of the year I, I i think um i think we'll start to see clearance rates coming down and maybe not that desperation to to, to get yearling sport like you've said you know a horse would be passed in at, at sales this year for 20 minutes and then it'd be sold because there was such a desperation for people just to get something yes so to mm. so watch this the, space one of the things in uh favor of um that actually helps the market it's the fact that a lot of racehorse owners are actually older people who are who are retired and don't have 
Uh, they've got super super funds they've just come into and they don't have uh, mortgages anymore and they're quite comfortable and they now need to spend this money before they um, go to God. Um, and, the wife, yep. and, the, and the life expectancy of uh, Australians um, is fortunately very good um, as I move into that sort of territory myself. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, and so there's a lot of people who are in their 60s and 70s who want to enjoy life and the race and owning a racehorse is uh, a great source of enjoyment. There's very few things more enjoyable than a good racehorse. So that that market will will still be solid. And they're the guys who are happy to pay $10,000 for a 10% share in a horse or a 5% share in a horse, that type of thing. So they're still there and they're going to be carrying it. Not It won't be unfortunate. The guys who are 40 years old have got two kids and a mortgage. They will drop. They will not be there. But they're not they're not they're not strong anyhow because even before interest rate rises they were in a tough gig as it was so um so yeah that's where that's one thing that helps the market now is the longevity of Australians and the the fact they retire with money oh you heard it here first vendors Louis cashed and he's ready to spend at the <laughs> sales this year <laughs> can't take it with you Louis <laughs> exactly right well, that's that's that, and that's exactly what they've got. The option is they either go and enjoy it themselves, or they'll leave it to the kids. So that's it; they'll enjoy you've got, it now. You've got, Louis, you've got plenty of rebel dance to follow for a long time, so you're not going anywhere. <laughs> yeah. What about the first season sire market? It's obviously uh, it's a talking point every year going into the yearling sales season. I just want a a name from each of you. Is there a, a first season stallion that you're, you're looking forward to seeing the progeny of or whose progeny you have seen on these early tours that have made you sort of sit up and take notice? JB, I'll, I'll start with you. Well, who could you leave out? You know, you have good years and bad years. I think this is a pretty strong year myself. Yeah. I've just looked at um, three or 400 yearlings the last few days. Um, you know, it's hard It's hard to pick one, but uh, dubious is a horse I think right. will make a big impression. He was, he was, uh, you know, he's by not a single doubt he's a fast two-year-old. Yes. Um, I think they'll sell pretty well, but he, he'd be my, you know, he's a colonial good two-year-old. Um, Kieran Ma trained him. He's he's my first season sire on what I've seen so far. Dubious. Yeah. Fantastic. What about you, Louis? Um, from first season sire awards, if it's a talking two year olds, um, at uh, dubious would be a candidate. I thought Zusain from the few I've seen would be a good chance. Um, longer term, I think one of the better stadiums once you're taking the three year old crop Pirata should do well. Um, but uh, yeah, but I agree with uh, Julian that a uh, very wide range of stadiums there choose from and something will emerge out of it. But yeah, they're there, there are a couple of early picks. Without, there's no sort of standout this year in terms of a, a first season golden slipper winner type of thing like a capitalist mm. or say next year we'll be saying Farnan perhaps. Um, okay. And it is, uh, a few years ago we said Sepoy, we didn't get that one right. Uh, but when the golden slipper winners usually have a have a first crop, they are they, they become natural candidates for early honours, um, but one out of two to achieve it. And um, yeah, this year it's a bit more, they've come from different sources uh, the 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 first season size that trip picking the right one is a bit of a trick. Gentlemen, we've covered some ground this morning. Thanks for joining me on the shortlist to look back, I guess, at, at Rebel Dane's success in 2022 and to, to cover some international ground and to look forward to these yearling sales. Christmas is just around the corner. I'd like to wish you both a very Merry Christmas. I hope you enjoy the festive season and I look forward to seeing you both, well, in a couple of weeks, really, at the yeah. Magic Millions. 
That's yeah, enjoy, it. Enjoy the break because we don't get long. <laughs> right, thanks, Mick. Thanks, Louis. Good idea. Thanks, Julian. Thanks, Mick. And thanks, everyone, for listening to The Shortlist. And remember, if you'd like to talk bloodstock with a real expert, make sure you visit bloodstockagents.com.au and get in touch with an FBAA member. <laughs>